This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Find the entertainment you love with Contour TV and Contour Stream Player. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. How do you explain the unexplainable? That warmth that fills you up from the inside out? Does it come from the air, the sea, the sun, the people? Or is it something that can't be put into words? Because Aruba is more than a beautiful island. It's a feeling that brings out a happier, sunnier you. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your next visit at aruba.com. What's going on, out, all outdoors men and women, and welcome to the Honey Hole Hangout. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Oh, man. oh, man, that good, was bad. Good try, Carson. Yep. You know? I, I, I let you down, Cliff. I'm sorry. <laughs> How much booze no, that was Carson? Fine, bud. You're good. Yeah. You're good. So we have Carson instead of Cliff. He's my What's younger up? brother. Cliff couldn't make it tonight. And we also have uh, Kevin Hutchinson. What's up, Kevin? Not much, not much. Just hanging out. Uh, would you uh, tell the uh, our listeners what you what you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, c- currently underemployed. Um, I'm a, actually a fishing guide, a fly fishing guide here in the Texas Hill Country. This is my 28th year doing it. It always sounds really, really long when I say that. Mm. But yeah, 28 years. Man, that's how old I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reminding <laughs> me. I'll be leaving now. Um, and also, I'm the, uh, I was the guy that rewrote Bud Pretty's uh, Fly Fish in the Texas Hill Country uh, guidebook. So some of you may know me. Which I think a lot of our listeners have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, that's about it. You know, just kind of fishing bum i guess is uh it doesn't look real good on a card but yeah that's kind of <laughs> what i do so anyway hopefully i can uh, add a little bit to the uh to the podcast yeah, yeah man we're glad you're here yeah. we're glad you're here did glad we tell here. everybody what the name of the podcast is what do you mean did we tell everyone what the name did of we the do the honey hole hangout yeah uh, i said it he carson oh, said it yeah sweet. this is honey hole you, hangout <laughs> we I, hang I, out I, and I, talk I, about <laughs> hunting and fishing <laughs> i stuttered so everybody started laughing <laughs> you might have missed it but you're good man it's just like your intro just like yeah. took me to a whole new level and i was like this is great well we got a, a wood tip pickle chip email Ooh, we're gonna start, Ooh, we're gonna start right off with it because it has become a listener favorite favorite yeah for sure so for those of y'all that don't know uh wood tip is a South Texas guy who has a ranch and he likes to comment uh, is a nice word to say about our podcast. So, um, <laughs> howdy boys. All right. So here's the deal. Okay. It's been a little busy down here in the South zone. Them bucks are running and we've been chasing these deer like Lone Star after a double need of maker's mark. I mean, we've been after it boys. No fooling. I haven't been able to write because I, I been had to split up my time <laughs> between all the gut and deer and tender my beautiful pump jacks. I bet that oil is so glossy pretty when it comes out too. Mercy. I was talking about you fellas to one of the Yankees down here trying to find him some pig meat groceries, and he told me my app was all jacked up. Okay, like I know 
I know anything about this technology crap. Apparently, I've been a little behind on your podcast shows. I'm going to try and get all caught up down here. All right. I'll get you another email out, but I got to work on my grammar so you boys can understand me. Okay. I'd offer to give you boys a call, but if you can't read, then I'm not sure your eels will work either. Uh, here's the deal. You boys are all right. I mean, it ain't like... Anyone understands what the Georgia fella says when he speaks anyway. <laughs> and that fella from wow. Austin and that fella from Austin has worse interwebs than I do, okay? And I'm down here next to a pump jack, elbow deep and pig intestines. <laughs> Gotta get them South Texas groceries. Listening like Linda signed wood tip. Nice wood tip. Thank you. I've got a question about wood tip. Okay. Is, there, is there any way you can tell that an email was written in crayon? <laughs> I just, Kevin's I, coming on throwing oh, punches. Yeah. I know. I just, you know, I, I like it. I like it a lot. You know, he doesn't even know about hot takes yet. It's, uh, no, it's good. He left a little poem at the bottom, too. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not poetry, but it doesn't rhyme, people. If the bards of old the true has told the pump jacks have raven bear but over the earth since art had birth they paint the angels fair <laughs> see I told you it rhyme <laughs> oh um, let's pop open our whiskey Zach um, I think yeah. we're the only two drinking tonight okay. um, this is another uh, gay, gay special. special it's Elijah Craig barrel proof Ooh. 2020 Batch number B520, and it's 127 proof. Yeah. Oof. That sounds good. <laughs> oh, you got to take the little you there. You take go. The oh, man. He started to pour, and nothing came out. It's like magic. Yeah, there you go. All right, now I want to smell that. Um, Ian, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, dude, I am drinking... Um, just Dr. Pepper (laughs) out of a bottle, 20 ounce bottle. Um, I feel like it was bottled in the last few months because it tastes fresher than some I've had in the past. (laughs) Um, It's pretty carbonated. Uh, it's got that classic where they have like 30 something flavors. I think it's 23 flavors. Yeah. You get 23 flavors. Can you name all the flavors? You getting that prune juice on the nose? Dude. Yeah. Prune juice on the (laughs) nose. Uh, like it, it's pretty aerated. Like I, I'm, I took off the cap and just, yeah. Like I've said with uh, Lacroix, you got to let it breathe. That's the secret. <laughs> Most yeah. people don't, don't really know that. Twenty three flavors. Eighteen eighty five is when uh, I think Dr Pepper came out. So there you go. Eighteen eighty five. That's really nice. Um, yeah, as a Texan, you know, or like Dr Pepper all the way. I like Coke too, but you know. What? This one's not my favorite. Gonna be honest. Mm. I think it's relatively smooth. There's a little bit of a kick in towards the end. Yeah. For being one twenty seven proof, I would not have guessed that. But Gabe's wait one twenty seven. That's flammable, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> this yeah, this I think proof. it's above fifty set or above fifty percent. Fifty seven percent is. <laughs> yeah, I like it, but I don't love Kevin, it. Kevin, yes, let's find out. No. <laughs> it's a little sweet. Oh, see, I like the sweetness though. Yeah. But that's because you're more scotch. I like more bourbon. <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually a fan. I like this. I'm gonna go with a three out of five. Really? Ooh. I'd go with a four. Yeah. Yeah, I get this. 
Yeah, be careful because it, this says anything above 100 proof is flammable. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that again. Cool. Thanks again, Gabe. Gabe has been – it's hard to beat those ones he brought last week. They were very good, yeah. Um, so we got two questions. Um, did Cliff sleep good after last week's podcast? I'm going to say he's not here to defend himself. I'm going to say he went right to bed after yeah. last week's podcast. He got a heavy pour. Yeah, he drank, what was it? We were drinking like 125, 127. Yeah. And he had like three fingers worth and he didn't know. Nice. Oh, man. And then our other question is favorite tying tools. Ooh. Kevin, why don't you start? I, you know, I've got to say it's a whip finisher. And, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm deadly serious. It, you know, when you go to these fly tying shows, there's some machismo about tying a whip finish with your hand. And I'm wondering if these blockheads rode a horse to the thing. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it, you know, big deal. So you can tie a knot with your hands, you know. Work smarter, not harder. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, yeah, did you ride a horse over here? They're sparky. So, yeah, I, I think the whip finish tool is just highly, highly underrated. And uh, and then the other thing that I I just couldn't be without, and anybody that's seen me tie at a show or anything, I have the most incredible hair stacker that uh, a buddy of mine made. Oh, handmade. And it's the average hair stacker literally weighs about two ounces, and mine weighs like almost a pound. I mean, this thing is like it could stack a deer while it was running. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, the thing's amazing. And uh, the guy who made it's a machinist uh, friend of mine, and he made, I think he made four or five of them for all these guys that used to hang out and tie together, and we all had our names engraved on them because they were all exactly the same. But they're amazing. I mean, I've had people offer me, literally I've had people offer me two, $300 for this thing. Wow. And I will never give it up. It's beautiful. And so, you know, between my whip finisher and my hair stacker, you know, those are kind of my go-to tools. Um, you know, there's a ton of great tools out there. You know, one of the things that I've enjoyed watching over my career is, is younger guys, you know, sitting in a room with younger guys right now. Um kind of dreaming up new tools and dreaming up things that work better than what we used to have. So that's, that's been kind of cool, but you know, the whip finisher hair stacker, and probably the third thing I'd put on that list is a good bone comb so mm. that you can comb out a lot of materials with it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, they're, you know, just, just having good tools is nice. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, those three things I couldn't live without. You know, personally, so I'm gonna. Uh, I agree with Kevin, but I'm gonna go a little more unconventional. Um, I like an adjustable tension bobbin. Ooh, yeah, 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 for um, sure. Like I will never tie with a non-adjustable tension bobbin again. After I started using one, and there's like a couple, like three, four options. I have like two or three different ones. They're uh-huh. all great. Yeah. Um. So if you it just makes a big difference because if you really need to crank down, you can tighten it. Mm-hmm. If you need to tie light, you can loosen it. And uh, it's just really nice to uh, to have it because it never seems like a, a normal bob and has the amount of tension that you want. You always have to squeeze your hand to get that tension that yeah. you want. Yeah, having that adjustable, yeah. Yeah. you can set it to what you want, and then you're good, good to, to go. go. And I'm going to admit, I've never tried one. I've always wanted to. So now I'm going to be motivated. I'm oh, gonna, oh, yeah. I'm going yeah. to send yeah. you one. I'll send you no, one. No, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I'd, I've always looked at them, and I've always, you know, I guess I've just never pulled the trigger on them. Yeah. They're yeah. kind of expensive. So for guys that yeah. are, like, trying to save money, it's 
not the most economical. It's what, like 30 bucks choice. for one? Yeah, 25, 30 bucks yeah. for one. Yeah. But they're good. Yeah, that was going to be my thing. Um, but I think for me, the biggest upgrade I made was going from a clamp vice to a, uh, a pedestal vice. Yeah. That made the biggest difference in my flies. Um, mm. So I would say probably that. Not even, you know, not even the most expensive one. Just kind of having the freedom to move wherever and do things that really help. Yeah, there's this other tool I like a lot. It's a. Uh, Pedigene, uh, he's a Swiss tire. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, makes he makes these scissors. little clamps that uh, is it the it's like the magic folder? tool. It's a hackle folder. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah, take yeah, your yeah. feather, yep. you push it in, it folds your hackle, yep. and you take a clip and hold yep. it, cut the stem off, and mm-hmm. then you can like yeah. do really cool things really. with like CDC feathers, which is my favorite material to tie with. Yeah. Um, you can just do really cool things with feathers that are a little bit harder to do without that tool. Yeah. Pedigene makes some amazing tools. He makes mm-hmm. some great scissors, and he makes the best dubbing spinner I've out seen there. It. That dubbing spinner is the bomb. I've mm-hmm. got one, and there'll be times when I'll sit, and I don't really want to tie, but I just kind of want to get something done, and I'll make 15, 20, 30 dubbing noodles with it. Really? And uh, <laughs> spin it. Yeah, it's kind of a brainless activity, yeah. but I mean, it's it's nice when you go to tie, and then there's nothing like tying even a simple fly like a woolly booger, and substituting the chenille with an actual dubbing noodle that you've done in yeah. a custom color that you can't get chenille in. But yeah, pedigene stuff. I mean, it's pricey, but it's good. Buy once, buy right. Yeah. You know Swiss I mean? made. They make good. Yeah. They make good stuff. Yeah. Buy yeah. once, cry once. Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got one pair of scissors that I use, and I covet them. I mean, I keep them in a little box so that no <laughs> one you know can get a hold of them. And, you know, no one's cutting wire with your yeah, nice exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, like what's a woodchuck or whoever wrote Whip that? Tip. Yeah, well, yeah, that guy. I'm not, woodchuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm not no, letting. We should wo- change his name to Woodchuck. I, I'm not letting him anywhere near my scissors. <laughs> Pedigene scissors and hog guts just don't really fill in the mix really well. <laughs> Hell, I cut that pig right open. I don't know. It just did it once, though. But, oh, <laughs> sorry, that's just too easy. That's a low-hanging no, fruit. <laughs> no, I love this. <laughs> um, Pedigene's vice. Have you seen the vice that he yeah. makes? One person I know has, has it. Uh, Jeff from Austin. Yeah, yeah. Has one, and that thing is adjustable in every imaginable way you could think of ice could be adjustable. Really, you can adjust the angle, the tilt, and I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, I, I gotta tell you though, seriously, the guy that taught me to tie flies, his name is Dick uh, Dick Powell, and he's about a hundred. He's over a hundred years old now because I flew back to Indiana for his hundredth anniversary or his hundredth birthday. And he still, to this day, and this is no joke, he ties on a pair of vice grips that have a spike welded to them, and it's driven into a piece of wood, like a a cut piece of, like a tree. Mm -hmm. And this guy ties amazing flies on on this rig, and I'm like... You know, Dick, uh, you know, they make fly tying vices and, you know, people could buy one for you. And he just loves tying on that thing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a vice but, grip that he's jammed yeah. into a piece of wood. Yeah. Oh, it's, man. It's totally amazing. But, yeah, 
It's and that vice grip is probably older than all of us. But yeah, <laughs> and to all those people that say fly tying's too expensive, you just you yeah, just haven't been creative yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fly tying is a hell of a lot cheaper than therapy. So. <laughs> <laughs> having, having done both, I can tell you from from uh, experience that it's much cheaper. Well, I think that's all our questions, guys. Um, time to move right into articles, pretty quick. Dang. Okay. Carson, you want to go first? Sure. All so right. we have uh, Carson's cool conservation corner. Yeah, it's true. He's C4. taking over. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I was worried I was going to get the C4 first. So sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so mine is about bald eagles. Ooh. It's, it's kind of short, but right. it's pretty cool. So around 40 years ago, bald eagle numbers dwindled across the United States and sightings became extremely rare. Celebrated events. America's national symbol was on the verge of extinction with little hope of recovery. Illegal shooting, pesticide contamination, and destruction of all their habitats played a role in the bald eagle decline. By 1963, only 487 nesting pairs remained in How all many? the United Say States. How many? Say that again. 487 nesting pairs. In all of the United States, yeah. It's Dang. crazy. Since then, we've taken huge strides to bring the bald eagle back from the brink. In 1972, DDT, the harmful pesticide contaminating their food, was banned in the U.S. In 1973, saw the introduction of the Endangered Species Act, which helped protect the bald eagle in particular. In the 1980s, a series of recovery plans were set in motion across the United States, and by 1995, the bald eagle had moved from the endangered species list to the threatened list, and the bald eagle was removed from the list of the threatened species on August 9, 2007. So pretty recently. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy to think about, honestly. I wouldn't have thought that's recently. And I'm yeah, seeing, either. I'm seeing a lot more around here now, yeah, too. Yeah. And I know yeah. that there's some on the San Marcos, yep. like, uh, where Kevin fishes a lot. Yeah. No, um, it's it's strange to see him there, but yeah. it's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, how recently have you started seeing them on uh, on the river again. This year, we saw them pretty early, and uh, there was one in particular. I think it was the same one because he was kind of in the same area almost every time that you'd see him, uh, just up from Martindale in between San Marcos and Martindale. But, yeah, it's it's been really strange. And another thing that's been kind of odd, uh, kind of in line with that, was is that we've heard owls during the day almost every single trip really huh. hmm. and it's really strange to hear him because for years you never heard that and uh so i don't know quite what's going on with that with the owl thing but the bald eagles it's it's pretty cool to see so. yeah when we went fishing in wyoming we were on the river and we saw this giant nest and we figured it was a bald eagle you remember that yeah well i saw all kinds of yeah bald eagles crazy. in wyoming and then montana just like every time you look yeah. You know, if you're looking for one, you can probably find yeah, one. Yeah. What's the main bird you see on the guad? The osprey, right? The osprey. Yeah, the osprey yeah. is yeah. Yeah. a lot of those. They'll come and pick up fish. Yeah, take off of them. Yeah. It's Did weird you? how they carry them, too. They carry them like, like a torpedo. Like the fish is aerodynamic with them. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> has been, this has been kind of a weird year, too, because there were so many hurricanes that we had pelicans uh, that were blown up from the coast. Um, <laughs> and they hung out on the San Marcos for yeah. they'd hang out for two three weeks and then they'd just yeah. get bored and they'd leave. But it's just really weird paddling down the San Marcos and all of a sudden there's like four pelicans. <laughs> 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 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, we we saw that twice this year where pelicans were blown up uh, from storms, and it was usually after a real real bad windstorm or yes. a, a bad you know a near miss hurricane kind of thing. But yeah, pelicans that that's odd too. So strange days. Do you think they leave before the storm gets there, or was like? It literally blows them. I, I that really, far. I don't know. I really don't know. But I mean, it, I noticed it twice this year that we saw them there, and and they would, they'd hang around for a week or two, and then I guess they just get bored. I mean, they're you know they're great fishermen, so I mean you know it doesn't matter if they're in salt or in freshwater, they seem to do just fine yeah. on their own. They but. get tired of eating the cichlids, and they're like, we're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or it's just the tubers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Eating waterlogged cell phones. I'm right. not sure which one. Yeah. Um, I'll go next. Cool. We're ready to move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On patrol. Um, so I brought um, an article that is like weird hunting laws that exist across the U.S. I like it. Um. So, um, in North Dakota, it is illegal to lie down and fall asleep with your shoes on. So, if you're out hunting and you doze off, leaning up against a tree, doze off while you're hunting, that is actually illegal. Now, why do you think it's illegal? <laughs> like, so weird. Like, like, so, well, like, that's a great question. <laughs> like, what was the precedent that started exactly. this? Like, who thought, like, no, 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 we got to change this guy. This yeah. is probably happen. like you know a law from like 1875. That's like a lot of thinking. these laws are just like really sure. old. But even an 1875 right, exactly. law, why would that be? Like, I can see what, like what, what kind of predators are up there. Like, maybe if you fall asleep, they like are trying to protect people from getting injured by predators. Yeah, well, but they then like you bear? think you'd want them to have their shoes right. on. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I, I, I Maybe people can't. were drinking too much and uh, they'd fall asleep. You know, they, they'd pass out drunk in the middle of the road or something. Yeah. And right. That was like a way, well, you're going to get arrested if you fall asleep with your shoes on. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I always wondered, like, how people lost their shoes after a night of drinking. But now if, like, if there's laws like that, they have to take them off. So then that's how they lose them. Yeah. The second weird law is in Alaska, you'll want to avoid the concealed carry of a slingshot uh, as it's a violation. You have to obtain proper license should you want to uh, conceal carry a slingshot. Okay. Does this fall under rubber bands and paper clips? <laughs> <laughs> Office product. <laughs> I don't know. No, I now that one I can see. Yeah. Because you can buy slingshots that are, you know, I mean, we're not talking Dennis the Menace slingshots here. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. like those wrist rocket things. Those are those are wicked. Yeah, yeah those yeah. ones you can take out squirrels and exactly. stuff with. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I kind of get that one. Sasquatch. This goes into our creature watch. Yeah. Um, whatever you call him, he's a source of myth and legend. Even in the game laws. In the state of Washington, it is illegal to harass a squatch. <laughs> and in California, it is illegal to hunt them. <clears throat> However, because the legal definitions of huntable game in Texas, you may feel free to hunt him. Oh, there you, go. you can legally hunt Sasquatch in Texas. Okay. Can you imagine being a game warden and writing someone a ticket like, 
Uh, well, you guys said you were Sasquatch hunting, which is illegal in this state. So <laughs> it's a, it's a $500 fine. <laughs> but did they have their shoes on? <laughs> that would be like the highlight of my game warden career is riding that ticket. <laughs> Catch something for hunting Sasquatch. Uh, here's one for the small game crowd. In Wyoming, it is illegal to take a picture of a rabbit from January to April without an official permit. What? A picture? A picture. There's no way that's enforceable. <laughs> Dude, photos are time-stamped, man. Right. What? Oh, I know. why? That's so weird. It doesn't explain why. It just tells me the laws. Well, hold on. Go back to the months here. When are the, what are the months you can't do this? January, January through April. See, I bet you that's their breeding season. And they don't want people harassing. Mm. They probably uh, don't yeah, want like people game cams. Yeah. Game cam would be. Maybe that's it. Because yeah. that's kind of an early spring. Well, no, not there, though. What what state was this? This is one. This was in Wyoming. Yeah, because it's still pretty damn cold in Wyoming. Yeah. In January. yeah, that's weird. I don't. Yeah, I'll retract that theory. Fishing in Indiana. It is illegal to catch a fish with your bare hands. In Indiana? Yep. Okay. Yep. I haven't been very successful with that personally. <laughs> no. There's just so many what ifs. Yeah. Um, they have the San Juan was in Well, Indiana. there's those, uh, uh, what's it, noodling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Noodling. Yeah. Maybe, that's a, maybe that's what it's preventing is and noodling. I, I feel like noodling would be like Indiana's thing, too. Like, it's like Oklahoma and Indiana. Like those, Careful. That would, <laughs> <laughs> I used to work at Indiana University. Careful. <laughs> Don't make that tuna joke. <laughs> um, in Kansas, this is bird regarding bird hunting. Uh, game birds can only be taken while in flight, with the exception of the turkey, which may be taken on the ground or in flight, but not in the roost. Yeah, but that's like a law almost everywhere. I don't think it's a law everywhere, but I know, um, like if you're pheasant hunting and there's dogs out, people don't want you shooting the ground. It's eye level or right. above. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more of like a self-enforced rule as opposed to an actual, yeah. an actual that law. That was for turkey? That was for uh, game birds except for turkey. Oh, except for turkey, okay. Yeah. Um, albino deer. Uh, this one was uh, in Oklahoma. You have to have written permission from a state wildlife director in order to shoot any albino deer. Hmm. Which seems oddly specific. Like an incident would have had to have happened. It's like right. we have to put this in place to prevent it from happening again. I feel like th- I feel like that's like pretty fair though, because albino deer are like already pretty rare, you know. And like if you see one on a game cam, you you can just write them up and be like, hey, is it okay if I hunt this? You know. Yeah, but it's not like an albino deer is like any different than another type of deer. Yeah, like an albino whitetail is still a whitetail. It's just yeah, the pigment's different. Yeah. If you're hunting in Alabama. Put away the flamethrower. Hunting regular. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Let's just cook it. Cook it. Just get right to cooking. Get right it. over it. Uh, hunting regulations completely prevent you from hunting with the aid of fire or smoke. And to be on the safe side, don't holler, smoke them after the shot. Nice. Yeah. Smoke them. I mean, I get the smoke thing, though, because there's a lot of burrowing animals that you could smoke out of a yeah. hole yeah. and shoot them. So, yeah, that part, yeah, I guess. But whoever thought about, like, a flamethrower? Yeah. Yeah. No. Apparently no, th- people in Alabama. Right. I think this article <laughs> just threw the flamethrower in there. But I think the regulations are more of just, like, fire for whatever reason you can't use to aid your hunt. Um, not every hunter is successful, uh, but 
neither West Virginia or Tennessee wants you to go home hungry. In both states, it's perfectly legal to bring any roadkill you may find back home Ooh. for the big cookout. Yeah, that the tracks. What'd you say? That tracks. Yeah. yeah. Like any, like you don't need a salvage tag or anything. You can yeah. just pick it up and take yeah. it home? No. no. Well, that deer incident of mine in San Antonio, which is a story <laughs> for another podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Cliff was really harping on me for uh, not getting a salvage tag, but then later on we found out that you, there's no, you can't, you can't take, do that in Texas. You can't yeah. take roadkill, period, in Texas, yeah. even with a salvage tag. No. Um, many hunters use the airplane as a means of accessing more remote places, nowhere more than Alaska. Should you find that you are sharing your bush flight with a live moose, no matter how rude, please do not push them out of the plane. Alaskan law strictly prohib- prohibits the pushing of live moose from an aircraft. <sighs> I know. <laughs> Why is that a law? Like, someone, how do you get a moose in an aircraft <laughs> anyway? It's a, like, it's a comfort animal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's all I got, guys. Weird hunting laws that find yourself hunting in another state or in Indiana. Don't uh, don't try to catch a fish with your bare hands. Try yeah, there you go. Ian, you ready to rock and roll? I am. This one's kind of sad, but also hey, one second, Ian. I'm- we Go got to preface your sad thing with a very funny yeah. thing. Neat thing to oh, nature. Yeah. Okay, now tell us a really <laughs> sad thing. Yeah. Okay, are we ready to go? Yeah, we're ready. Okay. Um, Fox posted this. This is in South Africa. It says published two hours ago. So oh, man. today is 12-16. Man mauled to death by pet hippo who said the animal was like a son to him. <laughs> This is a direct quote from uh, Bradford Betts wrote this on Fox. So I did not write this. He wrote this. A South African farmer was reportedly mauled to death on Sunday by his pet hippo, which he had previously said was like a son to me. Um, Apparently the guy... um, basically like had footage of him like riding his 2000 pound hippo and he had been quoted previously saying it's a little bit dangerous but i trust him with my heart that he won't harm anybody um i he also said i can swim with him i go in the water he allows me to get on his back and ride him like a horse (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah he does (laughs) (laughs) and then an ambulance spokesman told the Daily Mirror, this is sad, that paramedics found L's immersed in a river and he had been bitten several times by the animal. Uh, it was unclear what exactly had happened. Uh, he said he also like brushed his teeth or something. Yeah. Um, brush. I'm just going to stop there and say, guys, uh, it's like the people who put their kids on wild animals in Yellowstone. Like, be really careful. This is kind of like How about a just warning. don't mess with yeah. wild animals. Yeah, exactly. Don't mess with big, dangerous like hippos are predators. I, I mean, I can. They, well, let's put it this way: hippos are dangerous game. Like they are. Like don't mess with big wild animals. Yeah. Don't mess with wild animals. Hippos kill more people a year than sharks. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they also wow. sweat blood. 
Ooh. They sweat blood, really? Yeah, oh, it's red. Nasty. I don't think it's actually blood. I think it's just red. There is a photo of the guy riding it, like he's at a Bronco busting, you know, like on those mechanical <laughs> oh holes in a bar, <laughs> like in a bar. But it also, I mean, it's kind of like what do they call it? The Darwin Awards, like where oh, it's yeah. sad, but it's also like you Thin still rode a hippo, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you went down great. <laughs> like it's not like go. the hippo ambushed you, like. Yeah. yeah, you you jumped on the hippo's back, and you rode it. Right, right, rode it. What, what makes you um, want to do that? Like, how? What makes you think I'm going to get on this pet hippo's back? Like, what makes you want to have a hippo as a pet anyway? Did you all see those people in Yellowstone who thought like one of the it was like moose or elk or deer was cold, so they like put the baby fawn in their car, and then the yep. Yellowstone security like came and like oh my rode. Gosh. It. I don't know if they it was a baby buffalo. It. A was baby that what it was? Buffalo. It was a baby buffalo. They put it in the back of their car because they thought it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> Your son. <laughs> uh, the, message, the message here is just like respect wildlife and especially dangerous game and you know be safe out there it's you know it's it, people think they're pets and well, you know like, wildlife or wildlife yeah so that was like the what the PETA thing where sorry it just reminded me of when they they tranquilized a whole bunch of deer and they put the orange safety vest on them thinking that people wouldn't shoot at them <laughs> aim Classic. for the best. Aim for the best. <laughs> wait, wait. Peter, so, people put orange, like blaze orange vests on deer. Okay, so I'm gonna preface this by saying I've never actually read anything on this. This might just be that thing people say Peter did, but Peter actually never did. But it sounds so good. <laughs> it, it sounds like something they yeah, might do. You know, exactly. like put orange safety vests on deer because then people would be like, "Oh my gosh, that's a hunter," but then not just be like, "Oh my gosh, that's an orange deer." <laughs> Dude, you won't believe this. There's deer wearing vests. Hand me that rifle. Yeah. <laughs> you can see him a mile away. Um, no. <laughs> uh, uh, Carol Baskin from uh, Tiger King. Yeah. They just had a, a lion biting incident at their. Oh, yeah, like ripped a dude's arm off. Yeah, ripped a dude's arm off like, Are you a couple serious? days ago. Yep. <laughs> yeah, was it was a worker, a staff worker, who put her arm in the cage and lion ripped it off. Didn't she watch Tiger King? Until <laughs> <laughs> somebody else lost Yeah, arm. someone else lost their arm on that yeah. show. Ay, ay, ay. Can you imagine cage. somebody being like, man, I don't get along with my manager, and somebody else being like, at least your arm didn't get rid of all of my sucks. <laughs> that makes that Burger King job look so much better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, uh, this is the first time a listener's brought an article. Yeah, Kevin actually brought an article today. I um, did. I we did. don't have a cool soundbite for you. We can sing one for you. Oh, let's uh, see for me. Come on, see oh, for him. Yeah, okay, there we go for sure. There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like part of the crew now. <laughs> um, actually, this is a, a an article that a buddy of mine who uh, used to be a fly fishing guide and then got smart and got a real job. Uh, forwarded off to me and uh it's from the new york times and it's uh, the title is pandemic crowds bring river geddon to montana's rivers and it's a pr- relatively long article but it's online on the new york times uh, free site you don't have to pay anything to read it and it's very interesting and it talks a lot about people that are kind of escaping the pandemic in big cities by going out to montana and buying up land and trying to get away from crowds and, you know, which of course is crowding everything, which makes no sense whatsoever. But um, it's, it's, it's really kind of frightening. They talk about just the spread of COVID, but the other things that are going to be more long lasting 
are the uh, property values that are going up. They quoted one realist, realtor who said that property values or home values, average home values, had gone up $38,000 in a month. And, in a month? Uh, in a month. It's just unsustainable. Like, if you're living yeah. out Gosh. there, there's no there's no hope for you at that point. No. Yeah, the property ta- your property taxes are going to go up so high. And that's exactly what these people are saying. They're talking to some of these small business owners saying, you know, we can't afford to be here. We can't live here. We can't you know, pay the property tax. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty stunning to read the article and there's a few photographs of just incredibly crowded parking areas near the fishing areas. And, and, and for our listeners, it was more crowded, looked more crowded from the pictures in the quad. Yeah. yeah which is amazing. <laughs> but, yeah. I wasn't sure you could get that many more people in, but apparently they can do it in Montana, but uh, maybe they're skinnier there. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty frightening article. I would encourage people to read it um, because it 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 kind of just points out the folly of trying to escape things by just moving. Yeah, you know, just picking up and moving. You know, we were talking about this article before we went on, and and Landon was talking about uh, New York and how. People are just running from the city and moving out to the yeah. burbs or moving to Connecticut or wherever they're moving to, but they're yeah. just trying to get away from city centers. But that's just going to... Well, it, it hurts Montana, and like this example, but it also hurts the city because these people that are leaving are the highest earners in the town. And if they're moving out of New York, right. uh, that's lost tax revenue for yep. the city. Yeah. So it's a it's a double negative. Yeah. And then these people who are like you said are moving away to escape everything by the time they get there, so many of the people have done the same thing that it's like they haven't escaped anything. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it was an inter- interesting article, so when I when I saw it, I was I was pretty stunned actually. It, you know, cuz some of the areas they mentioned I've actually fished and I was, you know, when I was there, you know, maybe 5 years ago, it was a totally different ball game. Where'd so. you go? Um, I went kind of all over Montana. Um, <laughs> I actually went out there um, with the buddy who sent me this article. That's why he sent it to me. And we uh, we kind of don't ever have a game plan, and we rarely ever know where we are. You know, it's always funny because I'll call home, and my wife will be like, where are you? And well, I don't know. And I gotta like <laughs> You're it. lucky I had cell service. Yeah, <laughs> I have to look at, like, stationary in the hotel, you know. But, um you know, we fish in Missouri and a couple rivers out there, and and we fish with Smith, and you know, just just totally different, you know, totally different vibe than apparently what's going on out there now. So I feel pretty bad about that. You know, there's very few places left in the you know in the country that are kind of unmolested, I guess, and it's kind of sad sure. to hear about mm-hmm. them. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> but yeah, I guess that. everybody just wants to get away from COVID, but running from it's not going to fix it. You know? Yeah. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago, just like how everything's getting so much pressure now. And it's it's good for the sport. You know, fly fishing's growing, but at the same time, it's like, but at what cost? Like how many people are moving all over the place and yeah. going to hit all the spots that five years ago were totally different than they are now. Mm-hmm. It's a double-edged sword. What am I... Kevin, one of my coworkers told me he, with COVID going on, he works for a company in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and they just announced that working remote is permanent. And he said, like, half of the senior staff was like, "Wait, we can work from wherever." Yeah. And they, like in the meeting, and the CEO was like, "Yeah." And they, he said, in two weeks, they all put their homes on the market and moved out to rural areas. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
But he said they were, and they were like, I don't, we never wanted to live in San Francisco. We're out of here. But the thing is they have a ton of money, so I'm sure it hurts somebody else. Well, it was like Landon said, those are the people that, you know, are propping up tax bases because they do have a ton of money and they're Mm -hmm. employing other people and doing other things. Yep. But yeah, it's, it's back to the original point is, you know, the resource is changing. And one of the things that, that I really am troubled about that I've seen over my career is just the lack of respect for the resource. Yeah. You know, people that just go out and they just think it's this, everything's there for the taking and it's, you know, like their private little playground. And it, it's, it really bothers me. It bothers me to mm. paddle down a river and, you know, pass a kayaker that's fly fishing and he's got a Bluetooth you know speaker blasting away and Mm -hmm. you know there's stuff falling off his boat or you know he's leaving trash or doing whatever and i mean you know at some point that's got to change because Mm. you know we used to be the good guys we used to be the you know we could always point at the tubers and say well at least we're not doing that and now it just seems like that ethos just isn't there yeah that's that's troubling to me leave it better than you found it sort of thing yeah Yeah, it's just not so many more people are jumping in yeah but yeah, that's the one. That's another thing I've seen that's changed a lot. But yeah, I'd like to see that get a little better. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. All right, Zach. Last yeah. but not least. Okay, let's do Creature Watch. Oh, Creature! Got watch. an interesting one for you guys today. Ooh. What do you guys think I'm doing? So close to the holidays. Oh. Santa Claus. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing Santa Claus. Hey, really? oh. <laughs> hey, everybody. Everybody be really quiet because I'm not sure Landon's brother knows that Santa's not real. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it on the down low, all right? All you Santa deniers out there. Yeah. <laughs> hey, after, after tonight, you don't know. You look pretty Oh, excited. I do know. We haven't shut the door on any other creatures, so why Santa? Uh, <laughs> Santa. I hope Santa got the vaccine, man. Like, otherwise, like. Yeah. Oh, he's he's going to be ruined. You know he's diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. The guy's, he weighs, what, like 350 and he eats cookies all night? Come on. <laughs> Too bad Cliff's not here to ask him how much, uh, how much insulin Santa would need for one night. Exactly. <laughs> it's not just cookies either, guys. We're going to find out. Uh, it depends. Oh, man. <laughs> Okay, guys, so Santa Claus. He's also known as Father Christmas, St. Nicholas, Chris Kringle, or Santa. Chris Kringle? Yeah. You never heard Chris Kringle? Mm. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, you kidding? Yeah. It's weird. It's like a normal one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as you guys know, he brings gifts to nice children and cold and naughty children. <laughs> <laughs> this whole clean energy thing's going to hurt him, man. <laughs> How in the hell are you going to leave a wind turbine in a stocking? <laughs> Sorry, kids. It's the Biden administration. We can't Santa do it. brought you a wind turbine. <laughs> it just doesn't sound as good as cold, does it? I don't know. No, it does not. Yeah. Oh, man. Maybe, oh, maybe man. he'll get a waiver. He'll buy some kind of a green offset for that. I don't know. He'll Sorry. buy some carbon credits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he'll plant a tree yeah. for every uh, piece of Oh, man. Santa, we're giving you ideas here. <laughs> He'll make the elves do it, trust me. <laughs> um, so he's based on traditions uh, of St. Nicholas. Uh, where do you guys want to take a guess of around what century it kind of started? Ooh. Or what was uh, St. Nicholas? I think it's 15th. Nope. 
Dang it. 17th. No. Way sooner. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm 19th century. 18th. No, no, sorry. Other way. Way later. Oh, well, way, oh, way okay. sooner. Okay. As in, yeah. Earlier. Yeah, earlier. Okay, I'll, say, yeah. I'll say 12th. Okay. I'm, I'm out of guesses. So, fourth century. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, he was so a pre-1995. Pre-1995. <laughs> we cleared it, guys. We cleared the threshold. <laughs> Uh, he was a gift giver in Turkey. So that's kind of thing. There's this huge Christian population there. And he was the saint that went around giving gifts to uh, poor children. And he actually gave them to women as well so they would not become members of the oldest profession. <laughs> now, now so. which, which one of the names they, was the first name? that St. Nicholas. Okay, that's Saint who this Nicholas. guy was. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's also loosely tied to the Germanic deity of Wodan who uh, was associated with the winter event of Yule. Have you guys heard like the Yule Tide, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he led the wild hunt through the sky. So during Yule, there's this thing where like all the deities and creatures and everything go through the sky, all the spirits, you know, have this big parade through the sky, and he led them all through So it. is that where the flying sled came from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, got it. Mm, yeah, yeah, so... And this uh, Wodan was also kind of like similar. He's an older, kind of looked like Odin, you know, from uh, like North Nordic mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, big beard, you know, old guy, that kind of thing. So, as we know, he's a fat, jolly, bearded man. No comment. With a red suit and a black belt. Um. He really became famous, though, especially in America in 1823 after the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas. Uh, Thomas Nast, have you guys ever heard of him? Mm-mm. So he was an old cartoonist in like the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, but he's also given credit with kind of creating what Santa looked like with like the beard, the suit jacket, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know, he flies his sleigh and is led by magic reindeer. He delivers children to... Or delivers he gives dollars. <laughs> 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 Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> kind of trafficking operation. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Say let's take it a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> I never did trust that Kringle guy. Uh, the real Saint Nick, though, uh, decided that he was going to devote his life to Christianity. And that's when he decided he was going to give the gifts to the poor children and the women so they wouldn't become women of the night and that sort of thing, mm. uh, which is just, just crazy. Um, you can find his bones at the Basilica, Basilica, Basilica de San Nicole, and it's in South Italy. So after he died in Turkey, I guess, there's a bunch of arguing, like, who's going to get his bones? Who's going to get it? <laughs> Finally, they ended up putting him in South Italy. Mm. So... Uh, Santa Claus, the name Santa Claus was originally used in, what do you guys guess? Oh, it's got to be like some song or something. Yeah, what, what year? Oh. Uh, I'll tell you, it's more recent than the fourth century. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to say like 1900. I'll, I'll say pretty recent. 1940. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with that. I'm, okay. I think it's it was recent. 1773. Ooh, wow. wow. Yeah. So we were, you know, splitting from Britain and like, hey, let's come up with Santa Claus. Uh, he goes down chimney because St. Nick would toss coins down chimneys and through windows. So that's where the chimney thing came from. Uh, so we give him milk and cookies here. 
What do you guys think they give them in Britain and Australia? Oh, Britain. Fish and chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. That's a good guess, but no. It wouldn't be a toothbrush in Britain. (laughs) (laughs) There's only like four of of them in the whole country, so they're not giving those away. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Kebabs. No, no kebabs. So they give in beer in Britain and Australia, they get beer and mince pie. Ooh. And so he gets cookies and milk here. Yeah. And he beer, beer and mince pie. In Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, he gets rice porridge with sugar and cinnamon on top. Mm. And in Ireland, what do you guys guess? Scotch. No, no, not yeah. Irish whiskey. Man, you're gonna makes people mad by saying mm-hmm. that. I know. I didn't mean scotch. <laughs> I misspoke. Uh, he, in Ireland, he gets Guinness and Christmas pudding. Ooh. So that'd be kind of nice. Yeah. If I was saying I'd stop there first. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, I went to last. That's kind of a good finish for yeah. the night. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Guinness. Go home Guinness. with a little buzz. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, in Hungary, St. Nick brings a bag of gifts. He just drops the whole bag off on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on And watches everybody he's, fight he's, over them. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. No yeah. name tag on these. Bring it on, baby. Baby, bring it on. Uh, he brings it on the 5th of December. And um, if you're bad, though, he brings you a golden switch so your parents can wake you up and hit you with it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, and then also in Hungary, little Jesus brings gifts on the 24th. So St. Nick on the 5th, little Jesus on the 24th. Man, they're double banging there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Uh, so you want to leave a carrot out for his reindeer. That way they, uh, don't poop in your yard. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to watch, but Cox Contour TV helps make that decision easier. Enjoy live TV, on-demand programs, DVR recordings, and music all in one place. And only with the sound of your voice with the Contour voice remote. Plus, catch the golf and basketball action you've been waiting for on the Contour Sports app. Learn more at Cox, C-O-X dot com slash Contour. How do you explain the unexplainable? That warmth that fills you up from the inside out. Does it come from the air, the sea, the sun, the people? Or is it something that can't be put into words? Because Aruba is more than a beautiful island. It's a feeling that brings out a happier, sunnier you. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your next visit at aruba.com. Canada claims to be the official residence of Santa with the postal code H0H0H0. Hmm. So, Can you actually mail a letter there? Uh, no, but I actually have information on that. It's kind of exciting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I heard this on the radio the other day. I actually know this address. Yeah. So Santa lives at the North Pole, of course, right, with the help of his friends, uh, the, who are the elves. Um, so the U.S. has the oldest postal service dedicated to responding to children's letters. In 1912, they did, did, did this huge push for like children to write letters, uh, thinking that it would help encourage children to learn to read, to write. Um, they found that most boys get straight to the point, and most girls ask for gifts for other people. Oh. And uh, it is now deemed Operation Santa. So, in 1940, they switched the name. Uh, he has uh, he has had his fair share of controversy. 
from <laughs> from Puritan opposition, right, to anti-religious groups. Uh, many say now that he is actually the symbol of uh, commercialism. So that's great. Uh, <laughs> However, no matter what, no matter what, guys, we can all agree that uh, we should treat each other with kindness and uh, give a gift to uh, someone every once in a while. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's were you going to lay the address on him in the North Pole? Right. Yeah. Did you copy uh, that down? I did not. Uh, oh. But my, my it's qu- postal code H zero H zero. So ho ho ho. My question is: Is Tim Allen still wearing the red coat, or is someone else wearing it now? Oh man, haven't you seen the Christmas Chronicles? It's Kurt. Uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Yeah. Mm, I've seen that. <laughs> Didn't Tim Allen get indicted for like narcotics trafficking? Yeah, in, like, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It so was like, before his Santa Claus days. Right, yeah. right. He cleaned yeah, it. Yeah, it's a different kind of white snow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Can we keep that, that in good. the podcast? That was good. That was good. Tough room, man. It's a tough room. Approved, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Oh man. Ouch. I think that's all of our articles, huh? That's all. All right. Running a bit ten minutes early. Sweet. All right, Kevin. We're just gonna ask you questions now. All right, fire away. What's our uh, Zach? What are our normal uh, normal intros? go-to? Um, so, what most memorable fish? Mm-hmm. Oh. And what got you into fly fishing? Oh, well, uh, let me just go to what got me into fly yeah, fishing first. So let's start there. So. For those of you that have never met me, I'm a big guy. I'm about 6'4", weigh about 260, 270 maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we like to, we'll say 260. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was a kid, I was 6'4", when I was like 12. And so, of course, you know, everybody thought I'd be this big basketball star. And I was the biggest dork, uncoordinated loser that it ever was. And... Uh, so I, was, I, I just wasn't good at any sports at all. And then when I was about 18 years old, I was dating some girl, and I went to the dreaded, you know, meet the father meeting. And I was trying to think of things to talk to, you know, this dad about. And we walked through the garage, and he had like three fly rods sitting there. And I'd always wanted to learn how to fly fish. So the first thing he did, introduced me to him, and his name was Roger. And I said, you know, Roger, I'd love to, you know, learn to fly fish and that was it i was like in like flynn with roger <laughs> and uh and he was he was a pretty good teacher I mean, he was very patient and he kind of got me started but i realized that it was something i was actually good at and that was the first athletic endeavor or the first i, I don't i mean I, I don't know whether you call it athletic or whatever but it was the first thing that i tried that i could do yeah and i really enjoyed it and you know, it was kind of fun because Roger had a pond in his backyard full of stupid fish. And, you know, so it was like easy to get some confidence going a little bit. So, you know, and this was, by the way, this was in Indiana where you can't hand fish apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of the beginning, you know, it was just kind of a, uh, you know, this moment where I thought, wow, I can actually do this. And I enjoyed it, you know, and I loved to fish, Be- you know, before then I had spinning gear and all that. And, you know, I went home and, uh, and I sold all my spinning gear because I knew that if I had it, that when it got hard to fly fish, that I would always go back to the spinning gear. Yeah. And so I just got rid of all of it. And then that way I was just stuck. If I wanted to go fishing and it was windy, I learned how to cast in the wind. If I wanted to go fishing and there was some problem, I just learned how to deal with it. Yeah. So, 
you know, that went on for a few years and then ended up moving to Texas and was working as a commercial photographer in Austin. And I just got burned out. And one day I just walked into the studio and just quit. Yeah. And I had no plan whatsoever. I had no backup job, no nothing. And uh, I was married to my first wife at the time. And, and she just, probably the best thing she ever said to me was, you know, you like to fish, figure out a way to make money doing that. Yeah. And then that was it. And 28 years later, you know, I'm still doing it. So were there many people guiding at that time? No. Yeah. No, that was, that was the amazing thing. Like, uh, my good friend Dan McGrath, some of you have met Dan at some of the talks that I give. He shows up. But Dan and I both lived in San Marcos, and we were really the only two guides that were around. And we just kind of, one day we just kind of met up and said, look, we can beat each other to death, and neither one of us will make a living, and we can join forces and kind of do it. And so I would say back then it was Dan and I, uh, Alvin, mm-hmm. Dido, uh, worked at the Angler, uh, Joey Lynn was still living in the States and he worked there and he was guiding and Kevin Stubbs and that was it. You know, there were a few other people that did conventional tackle and would take you fly fishing if you begged them to. Right. But they weren't really fly fishing guides. So it was pretty much us. And it's funny because all of us are still active guides. Um, even though Joey doesn't live here anymore, he's uh, lives in Argentina, but he guides even after he had a stroke a couple of years ago and he's still back at it. So. Yeah. So yeah, the, the original guys are still around. So that's kind of funny, I guess, I guess we're just unemployable doing anything else. But, <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of fun. It's changed a lot over the years. You know, a lot of people have come and gone and, but you know, it's, it's still nice to see some of the young guys coming on. So, but that's how I got started. So I guess that was, answers that one what's your uh, most memorable fish oh man (laughs) probably i wouldn't say one there's two um i i caught a 182 pound tuna in thailand wow that is awesome that was that was the dumbest thing i've ever done on the fly (laughs) on the fly yeah it took almost eight hours oh my gosh and it was hilarious because like the it's too long a story to tell here, but it's a great story. But the once I hooked the thing, you know, the the captain puts the boat in neutral because the boat to set a record on on a fish like that, the boat has to be in neutral, and you just basically have to fight it out. And uh, and it was about 110 degrees, and this boat's heaving away in the you know in the ocean, and and they all went into the air conditioned wheelhouse, and they were just looking at me like, oh, stupid round eye, you know, like. <laughs> dumb dude (laughs) and i fought that fish for about an hour and i actually got it in pretty close to where i could actually see it and it was just teasing me because then it just took off again (laughs) and i got it in close again and then all of a sudden i just felt this urge coming over me and I looked up at the wheelhouse and they came running down and they dropped a transom on the back of the boat and I threw up all over the boat and they just rinsed it off and went right back into the wheelhouse. (laughs) The captain called down and said, don't worry, everybody does it, you know, (laughs) so it didn't make me feel a lot better, but yeah, we finally landed that fish and they actually took it in, uh, to Phuket uh, where we were staying and they sold it in the fish market but it was a yellow fin it was beautiful it was a mm. beautiful fish we ate now, it. you said the transom was that or that they had to put it in neutral 
Was it ended up being some kind of record? Well, no, and that was another thing. As I thought, I was like king of the world, you know. I'm like, oh man, 182 pounds, you know, take that, you losers. <laughs> and then I get to where I get internet, and I look it up, and some Australian 14 year old girl had caught like a 300 pounder, oh, and I was like, oh, burned by a 14 year old girl, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it wasn't even anywhere near close to the record. But it was wow. cool. It was very cool. When was, was this? This was back. Um, this was before the tsunami hit Phuket, which was kind of really sad because if you know anything about Thailand or anything about Phuket, about 80% of the people lived in the bay on boats. And so you know that when that tsunami came through, it just it wiped them all out. Mm-hmm. That was what, 2004? Yeah, so I think it was 2001 when I was there. So it was a long mm-hmm. time ago. But that one's one that, that just sticks with me just because it was just such a horrendous fight and it was just tough it was just a tough fish and then probably the other one is a fish that i didn't catch and that was on the lano um the big sandstone bluffs by homer martin's place i was wade fishing with a friend of mine from england named eric scott and uh i hooked this monster and it i didn't see it until it jumped and once it jumped i realized it was a 10 pound plus fish i mean it was huge and then i just got scared i just wimped out and started playing it real soft and it just ran me under a rock or something and broke me off and i just i sat there and i almost cried because it was like oh that would have been my personal best at the time on a bass and my friend who was you know man a few words came over and looked at me and he just said oh tough break mate (laughs) (laughs) just kept fishing but i'll never ever forget that fish because every time i pass that spot and i've passed it hundreds of times i think about that fish and it just still burns me Mm. oh man that was a long time ago but it still (laughs) burns me but you know i've i've had a really lucky life and i've been able to fish in a lot of cool places and caught a lot of cool fish and uh you know, each one of them is like a little blessing almost. It's like a little gift you yeah, know, that mm-hmm. you get to hold. And one of the things I love about this sport is that you get to release it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's going to be okay, you know, as long as you handle it correctly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to live to fight again. Mm-hmm. Although that tuna didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to eat a little bit of that Actually, tuna? Actually, it was really, the, that's one of the coolest parts of the story. So we finally, I finally fight this fish down to where it's really tired and they dropped a transom on the boat, and they gaffed it and pulled it in, and it was still alive. I mean, it was just kind of staring at me. And this one of the crew member came running down with this razor sharp fillet knife, and he cut right along the spine this little triangle of meat, and the fish never flinched. And he cut, he missed every nerve on the fish's back, and they cut this little triangle of a warm tuna and in the wheelhouse they had a rice cooker that had sticky rice in it and we sat on the deck of the boat eating warm tuna and sticky rice oh man it was awesome that's great. Although I did make eye contact with the fish. I felt a little bad. <laughs> you're eating it. Yeah, you're, looking, yeah. you're watching it. Like, Dude, this is great. You ought to have some. <laughs> but, uh, but that was really cool. I mean, that was, kind of a, that was kind of an epiphanal moment for me because it was like, you know, that was a fish that I had targeted and, and really wanted to catch and, and had gotten an opportunity to do it. Yeah. So, but, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And it was great. By the way, it was awesome. That sounds awesome. It was awesome. Awesome story. So yeah. I, 
I think a lot of people that know you, if they haven't fished with you or maybe heard a presentation, know of you because of the uh, Fly Fishing Texas Hill Country book. Yeah. Um, how did that <sighs> come about? And, uh, and what's the story there? Because I know that uh, Bud Pretty, who I, I believe lived in San Antonio, you mm-hmm. might be able he to did. verify that. Um, a re- wrote an original version of the book, and then you kind of took it over at some point. So the original version of the book wasn't a book. It was a it was a bunch of, and this will show my age because none of you guys even know what these are. But it was actually a mimeograph. So before there were Xerox machines, there were these little things called mimeographs, and you would actually type them, and then it would it was like carbon paper, and then you'd run it around this drum that had alcohol on it. It would make these little blurry prints, and it was a <laughs> mimeograph machine. That's how they made all the papers at school and everything. And it was always funny because it was this alcohol, and every time you'd get a mimeograph, you'd start smelling it. You, <laughs> you know, when you were a little kid, you'd be smelling it. You know, But um, it was a mimeograph, and it was about 14 pages long, and it was given to all the new members of the Alamo Fly Fishers. So it was just something that he did just as a like, here's your home water. Mm-hmm. You know, here's to go fish. And so it's, it slowly grew more and more. He added more and more stuff to it. And then he met up with a guy named Thomas Taylor who saw the potential of the book or the potential for it to be a book. And they fleshed it out to about 93 pages. Uh, the original version, I believe, is about around 93 pages long. And uh, it covered 14 rivers, which mine covers. And um, it was just a where to go, how to kind of thing. You mm-hmm. know, it was just how to get in, how to get out. And uh, so Bud wrote the first version of it, sold about 2,000 copies of it. And about four years after he wrote it, he wrote an update, which was the second edition. And then unfortunately, he died rather suddenly. Um, And uh, Thomas Taylor, the, the guy who owned the rights to the book, the publisher of the book, put out a third edition and that's the one that's not spiral bound and it's a smaller version and it was written by a bunch of different people and 80% of them don't even fish and it just was a travesty I mean it was a joke and it made the pretty family really really mad and so they Mm. purchased the rights to the book back from Thomas Taylor and just retired it and just said we're never going to look at this again because they were so angry about the third edition. So, you know, me being the idiot that I am, I decided, well, I'm going to rewrite this thing, you know, which is always good for some dyslexic dude to take on a, you know, (laughs) masterpiece. And uh, so I started calling his widow, Pat, and she would never answer my phone calls. And then once we finally got email, I'd start emailing her, and it took me literally nine years nine years of about every three months I'd send her an email or I'd call her and she'd ignore me like a champion. <laughs> and finally I just wrote her a letter and I said, Pat, I, I really want to do this book. I really want you to be on board. And I said, if you don't answer me or at least talk to me, I'm just going to change the name and do it anyway. Right. And that'd be a shame because then Bud's, you know, not a part of it at all. Yeah. He dies, you know, basically. And that got her. And so had a meeting with her in Round Rock, um, some barbecue joint. And uh, I'm really good at reading people. And I went to this meeting, and I had my little 
you know, my little portfolio of all my magazine articles that I'd written and I had a, you know, production schedule for the book and I had all these projections about this and that and everything in my nice little folder and I gave it to her and she was there with one of her son-in-laws and she politely listened to me and gave me zero signals. I had no idea how I was doing. <laughs> and I walked out of that restaurant and I looked at, at my wife and I said, I don't know what just happened. And she smiled at me and she said, you got it. <laughs> she said, you're going to get this book. And it was about a month and a half later and, and Pat calls and says, you know, we're going to let you do it. We're going to negotiate a deal. And we're going to let you rewrite it. And I just was over the moon. And uh, so I just started rewriting it. And, um, you know, it just kind of went from there. I went back to the original format of the book. Um, Which is the rivers and then the locations. The rivers and, and the locations. But, like, in my book, it has GPS readings. Well, right. his didn't because GPS didn't exist. Yeah. It was only military had it. And then I added to it, I added the notes section at the end of each one because I figured that there were people who didn't fish that were going to go on these excursions and they would need to have something to do. Yeah. So I tried to find other things around these things to do. But I think the proudest thing I am about the book, there's a couple of things, but one of them is when you get to the end of the book, there isn't a big section of, Oh, I want to thank this restaurant and this lodge and this hotel and this whatever. I took nothing for free. Yeah. And so every opinion in that book is my opinion. Yeah. Unjaded by getting paid off. Right. No rod companies gave me rods. Nobody gave me stuff. I tried to do the whole thing on the down low. But, um, you know, I was really proud of that. And I was proud of the fact that the, the pretty family had some input into it. Yeah. You know, Pat wrote. If you read the, the stuff that she wrote at the beginning of the book, it's pretty poignant. You know, it, it's very personal about how Bud died. And uh, but it, it was a neat thing. And, and the, I forgot to mention this: the the, the brother or the son-in-law that accompanied her to lunch with me was an attorney. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was kind of <laughs> watching over to make sure I wasn't like putting the screws to yeah, her. But yeah. it's always been a very amicable relationship with the family, and they're pretty happy about the book. Pat actually came to. A book signing I did in San Antonio it was pretty fun because people wanted her to sign the book, and she didn't know what to do. And I said, "Take a pen, start signing." Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. But it's been great. I mean, you know, he sold when I originally in my first run on the book was two thousand copies, which was totally egotistical because that was the most he had ever sold was two thousand copies. And uh, I have about 400 copies left. And when I sell those, it will be 19,000 copies I've sold. Wow. wow. And uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. And it's, it's, still, it's still that's a goer. Awesome. You know, I've and got, that's really good for like a region-specific book. Right. Yeah. Well, the average self-published book sells 450 copies. Yeah, man. Oh and a little, a little tidbit, uh, the highest book award you can win for writing a book in the United States is called the Man Booker Award. Two years ago, a guy won that with a book that sold under 400 copies. So, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. So, I don't know. Not that I'm going to ever win anything for mine, but it's nice to know. It, what really is gratifying to me is, is, uh, is going to a local fishing place and seeing – Walking by a parked car and seeing my book laying in the seat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
and I, I'll tell one more story about the book because I'm not. No, you're good. The book's great. But the I was on a plane one time coming back from uh, uh, St. Louis, and I sat next to this guy, and he was reading my book. And I was like, oh, man, this is, you know, like, I don't want to say anything, but I got to say something. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, what's that book about? And he's like, oh, man, it's a fishing book. Oh, you know, I said, is it any good? And he's like, yeah, the thing's great, you know. <laughs> and he gets to the end and there's my picture at the end of the book. And he looks down and he looks at me and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'm really glad you said something nice because I said it would have been a really long flight if you hadn't. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it was kind of cool. It, that was that was kind of a neat uh a neat little tidbit, but yeah, I've sent them all over the place. I've I've sent them uh, about seven or eight different countries, and uh, you know, a lot of different states, and lots of expats that really like reading about Texas. So. Oh yeah, but good feedback. I've, I the only I got one really snarky letter one time about uh, <coughs> a section in the Guadalupe where I give the same GPS coordinates for two places. And some poindexter wrote me this thing that it was physically impossible for two areas to have the same GPS reading. <laughs> and it was like this three-page email, you know. Oh, and I, I just wrote back, and I'm like, you really don't have much to do, do you? you know? I never heard from him again. But, but How yeah. long did it take you to write it? It took about two and a half years. Okay. And I, I mean, I made a joke about being dyslexic. I am dyslexic. Yeah. And writing for me is really, really difficult. And I have to have super good editors to catch all of my little boo-boos. But um, it took about two and a half years, and I fished every inch of every river that I wrote about. Really? And that took a long time. I spent There were times I spent three weeks away from home just uh, literally staying in hotels and just walking banks and, and you know, trying to find trying to find places to get in the rivers. And, yeah. So you, you just go, go to a section of, of a river – and know for the next few days to a week or two, I'm just going to be here yeah. working it out, yep. figuring out the places to park, figure out the places to hop in, what yep. works, what doesn't. Yep. And the problem was that when Bud wrote it, he wrote it in like 1994, a lot of these roads didn't have names. Yeah. They were just roads. They were just like dirt roads. And I remember, th this is another funny story, it was outside of Utopia, and I was trying to find one of the put-ins that he wrote about in the book, and it said, take the first road or take the first left outside of town or something. And, you know. It's changed so exactly. much. Exactly. And so I was driving, and there was this old gentleman sitting on a porch, and I thought, well, he'll know. He looks like he's been around a while. So I kind of <laughs> stopped, and I said, uh, I said you, you, you know, you lived here long? He's like, I lived here my whole life, boy. You know, and he was in his 80s. And I said, uh, I said, well, I'm trying to find this road. And, and I kind of read him the section of the book, and he said, yeah, this, is, this used to be the first road outside of town. And, and it, it had a number then. It was like 318 or something. And uh, I was getting ready to leave, and he said, you know, a, a couple years ago, there was some old guy that came up and asked me the same damn question. <laughs> and it was Bud. Oh, it was Bud. Oh, man. It was funny. Um, so that was kind of humorous, but, um, and then one of the other mysteries of the book that I, um, kind of discovered was, um, the San Marcos, which I think is one of the best rivers in Hill Country, got three pages and the Medina, which is kind of a minor river, got like 14 and I couldn't understand why. And so I just kind of rewrote the book and. The Medina got 10 pages and the San Marcos got 10 or 15 pages, you know. I mean, it was just 
it's a bigger river. It's more more to fish. And finally, I was. It always stuck in my mind why these small rivers. Why he wrote about them so much. And one day I was talking to Pat, and I said, you know, why did he write so much about the Medina and all that? And she just smiled, and she said, he loved to wade fish. And those rivers are all wadeable. Uh-huh. Mm. And he hated getting in a boat. Yeah. He hated being in a canoe or a raft or any of that stuff. He loved wading. And so any river that he had to get in a boat to fish, he didn't care about it. He just, <laughs> he just was wrote like, a couple things yeah, about. There's there some water, go. there's some fish, go have fun. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, the Medina was like, you know, watch, watch out for the slippery rock and I'll, you know, in mile number two, you know, but just very super specific. Yeah. And uh, so by the time I finished writing it, um, my book was, I think mine's about 127 pages. So I added about, 30, 40, 50 pages to it. Yeah. Mm. But same format, and maybe one of you guys can answer the trivia question for the night. Why is the book the shape it is? Because it's an odd shape. Is it a foot? So it fits in a, uh, a glove box, so you can keep it in your vehicle. It was the biggest book that you could make that fit in a nice. Ford F-150 glove box. <laughs> <laughs> and that was exactly what he, he measured it, because he had an F-150. He measured it, and it just fit in the glove box. Oh, man. And why does that have a spiral Amen. binding? He put a spiral binding on it so that it could lay flat in the seat next to you when you were driving. You could look over and follow so, it. Oh, yeah. Itself. So you didn't have yeah. to worry about exactly. keeping it open. Yeah. 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 But um, everything was very specific. So when I got control of the book, I went back to the original format. Um, if you have an old copy of the book and you stack it next to mine, the paper is exactly the same. And that took me forever to find that paper. Find the same type. And uh, the inks are the same. Everything was the same. I did change the front artwork. Um, and that was a conscious decision. That was the only time that I got sideways with Pat was I sent her the artwork for the cover and she was like, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> She's like, I'd be embarrassed if you use that. And, and it was so, the pan fishes on there now? Uh-huh. Yeah. Which my daughter actually. Oh, painted. really? Yeah. It's, mm. And that's another funny story. But um, uh, yeah, and, and I finally just begged Pat. I said, I'll, and I bought the old artwork to put it on there. And I said, I'll put the old artwork back on there. But I said, ask your kids, and this was close to Thanksgiving before I published. And uh, I said, ask your kids what they think about it. And their kid loved it. Really? And she called me back and she said, I don't understand why, but they love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like saying, because they have taste. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it was funny. She just hated it. And then after she saw it printed, you know, it looked different, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. I guess when you see a, you know, 150 books spread out in front of you, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, anyway, so that's the story of the book. It's still selling well. Um, Everybody wants me to rewrite it and update it. And really, there's not a whole lot that I can update on it. I mean, there's some things I can update, and I've done that with different printings. It's in its fourth printing now, uh-huh. and none of the four printings are the same. I've updated things. Rather than calling it a new edition, I just updated it when yeah. I sent it to the printer. It mm-hmm. seems like out of all the rivers in the book, because I think I've read all the book, if not pretty close, but it uh-huh. seems like the Blanco is the most questionable 
the Blanco is the only river that I put negative stuff in. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I to, well, I told, I told people about where they couldn't get in. Yeah. yeah. Because that river is so incredibly locked down and hostile landowners. Why is it, lo- why is it so locked down? Because I know this is a problem that, like, when I was working for the shop, people would have those yep. issues. Oh, with the Blanco? With the Blanco. And the Blanco just is like, the one that goes into... Uh, it goes into the San Marcos, just below San Marcos. But then up in uh, Marble Falls, that's the one that goes through there, right? That goes no, through. that's that that's the Lano goes through there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then turns into the Colorado? Uh, the, the, actually, the Lano just kind of comes down in and eventually goes in there, yeah. Okay. But... The reason the Blanco, the Blanco is so tough is because the landowners out there just believe they own it. And it, that's just always been the ethos out there. And if you read through the Texas river laws and Texas water laws, they're written very vaguely. And the reason they were done, that was very purposeful. The reason they were done that way is to give the county judges a huge amount of latitude on how to enforce them. And Blanco County has always had very landowner-friendly judges that have just supported that. Leaned on their side. Absolutely. And, yeah. and and part of it is, you know, and I'm not going to go into this because this would take the whole show to explain, but part of it is the way that they deeded land back to some landowners when Texas was actually formed. They were called Mexican land grants. And it was a way for them to kind of calm down a lot of people that they took a lot of their land. They gave them a little bit of it back. And they gave him this thing called a Mexican land grant. And what Mexican land grant said was, if you own either side of the river, you own the riverbed. Oh, but really? Yeah, but here's how smart the Texans were. <laughs> they were really smart. And if I did, if I sold land in, or if I gave land in back 10,000 acres of land with a Mexican land grant, it all looked real good until you got to that one little line of type oh. that said, by the way, if you give away one inch of that land to anybody outside of your bloodline, this is all void, and it reverts to American law. Really? So when Texas was formed, there were literally millions of these Mexican land grants. There's eight left on the books. Four of them are inside the King Ranch. And then the other ones are up like in the Amarillo area. But those pieces of paper still exist. And I've had old guys waving laminated Mexican land grants in my face, and going it's just been in their family wow. for hundreds of years, and wow. they just don't. And, and they've sold parcels of it to everybody and their dog. Uh-huh. And it says right on there, you can't do that. But that's the reason. Mm, gotcha. So there's just a lot of vagary in the law, and it's all left up to the judges. Gotcha. Now Blanco. Okay, so I don't know why I'm blanking on where Blanco River is. Blanco it's River State Blanco, Park. It runs Blanco through, River State Park. It yeah, runs okay. through Wimberley. Yeah. Okay. We're literally yeah. Blanco is where real ale is. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But the Blanco is a beautiful river. It's a great river to fish, but access is tough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I fish. I don't think I fish it anywhere other than the state park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been shot at on two rivers in Texas. That's one of them. Oh, you got to tell that story. Wow. Those yeah. 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 What's the other one? The devils. Oh. So, so <laughs> what you really you want to hear that story? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so this was back in the day before we had rafts, before we could afford to buy rafts for the business. So we actually, this is so bad. I'm inventing this on the radio, <laughs> but we used to rent boats from the university 
And we would, and you had to sign this piece of paper that said, you will not take these canoes off the San Marcos River. And we would like drive trailers full of them down to the devils and stuff. And I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were driving all over the state with these damn, uh, you know, uh, uh, Texas state canoes. Anyway, so we're, we're cruising down the Blanco one day in these boats. And uh, this guy just shows up on this ridge line and he just raises a gun up and he shoots right in the middle of the canoe. You know, he wasn't trying to hit wow. us. He yeah. just wanted to let us know. So he was maybe 50 yards away. I got a great look at him. He wasn't trying to hide himself at all. Right. So he shot a couple holes in the boat. And we put some duct tape on him and just rode like hell and got and got out of there. You literally shot your oh, boat. Oh, yeah. Wow. Two holes in my boat. So, actually, did, it was four did, because it was through and through. Did he, like, say anything as you... No, it, he didn't need to. He just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I somehow understood that language. <laughs> and uh, so, I got a good look at him. So, I was all mad and I go driving into, you know, go driving into Blanco and I'm, you know, full of fire and vinegar. And... Uh, I walk into the sheriff's office and, you know, the little secretary's like, oh, y'all just got to sit down and wait, you know. And so I sat down and waited. And finally I get to go in the sheriff's office and I walk in and he's a nice, you know, middle-aged guy, gets up, shakes my hand, you know, what can I help you with, son? And I look on his desk and there's his gorgeous daughter in her wedding photo and the guy in the wedding photo is the guy that shot at me. No, no way. And, uh, and I said, well, let me tell you, is that your son-in-law? And he's like, well, yeah, he's married to my daughter. And I said, well, he put four holes in my boat. And I said, I don't think anything's really going to happen, is it? And he said, son, you're right. And I just turned right back around and walked wow. out. And that was it. That was that was the entire deal. Oh, was, uh, yeah, there oh we my go. gosh. And, uh, yeah, and that was it. And I got the message loud and clear. But, you know, and the devils, that it was not uncommon for people to get shot out of yeah. the devils a lot. But um, the Blanco is a little surprising. Yeah. But I've had people threaten me with guns. I had somebody uh, out on the Lano uh, hook my truck up and drag it in gear for five miles, flatten all four of the tires. Um, I've had people siphon my gas. I've had people slash my tires. I had somebody jack up my truck and put it on blocks and take all my tires to a convenience store 15 miles away. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so you name it, it's happened. So. Sometimes the landowners are not nice. Yeah. But I've tried to make friends with most of them, and and things like that have slowed down a lot. It used yeah. to be a little more Wild West when there wasn't many As many guys. people on the, on the water. Yeah, because yeah. I, I imagine now you don't hear about those stories as much anymore. No. But I thought the most creative one was the guy that jacked my car up and took the wheels off and then took them to a convenience store. <laughs> <laughs> and he left me a note, told me right where they were. Okay, if you, yeah. get it, if you can make it here, they're here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it was like, yeah, exactly. But um, did you did you hitchhike, Kevin, like to the store? Yeah, or? yeah. I mean, yeah. I had to. It was fifteen miles away, right? Right. And I got there, and I, you know, the guy that that drove me there couldn't drive me back. So then I had to wait in the parking lot of the convenience store <laughs> until somebody tires. with a pickup truck that I could get four tires in the back of would give me a ride back. Oh man! So, and a little hint for everybody out there, seriously. Anytime you need to get a ride or get a shuttle in an area where you don't know anybody, always go to the convenience store. Yeah. Because they always know somebody that wants to make 20 bucks yeah. and will drive you somewhere, either the convenience store or if you're staying in a hotel, talk to the maids at the hotel. The people that clean the rooms, almost always they know somebody. This I've gotten some of my best out. shuttle people from convenience stores or hotels. Yeah. So, anyway. so 
I think you're the first guide we've had on, Kevin. But yeah. uh, if someone <laughs> wants to do a guided trip, like, what are some tips to like make their guided trip better? That's a great question. Um, two things is be honest about your skill level. When when I know I'm in trouble, is when somebody says, "Oh, I'm an expert." That Whoa. mean here's the definition of an expert. It's a rich dude that goes to Montana once a year, has a guy do everything but wipe it for him. <laughs> and maybe they do. I don't know. I've never been there. but And they think that they're, you know, flip pallet. And they can't cast 20 feet. All they've ever done is fish with nymphs for trout. And that's it. And they think they're great. Be honest about what your skill level is. And the reason I say that is that there are different stretches on different rivers that I will take people if they say, you know, I'm just a beginner. There's a lot of stretches there I do not want to take them on because they're not going to catch anything. Right. It's too technical. If they have a little bit of skill or have more skill, then I'll, you know, do that. So be honest with that. And then the second thing is have the right expectation. You know, the the bad thing now is Instagram. Oh, yeah. You know, First of all, everybody has those go-go gadget arms where they're holding the fish out 45 <laughs> feet in front of them, you know, so the one-pound bluegill looks like he's, you know, Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always tell people when they're looking at a picture, give it the thumb test, okay? If the thumb in the picture is as big as the person's head, they're holding that fish way out, okay? And that just irritates me. And then the other thing are, is the vagaries of people like, oh, my God, we slammed them today on the Guadalupe. And then you talk to the customer like a week later, and I'm like, man, you had a great trip. Saw that picture, and they're like, we caught one fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, hey, they slammed that one fish. Yeah. So, you know, have expectations that are in line with what reality is. Like right now – it's what do you what would you guess the temperature is right now like 48 so 48 so tomorrow when i get up to go do my trip on the san marcus it's going to be in the low 40s now i have two guys that i'm fishing with that are good fishermen but they have the right expectation you know they're not going to go out and catch 20 fish tomorrow right that ain't going to happen right but they want to go fishing and so they know what's what so one of the things you can do is just have the right expectations. I actually have a, a handout that I give in all my casting classes, and I send it to a lot of people. And I've published it in a few things, but it's, it's, a, it's called a guide to guides, and it's a, like a 10-page thing that tells you how to pick a guide. And there's a lot of stuff to go into. You know, I, I happen to be an Orvis endorsed guide, which means that I'm trained in CPR. I'm trained in first aid you know, a bunch of other things that I have to do to become an Orvis guide. It's amazing how many guides are out there on, especially on the Guadalupe right now that aren't even, they didn't even buy a guide's license. Yeah. They're yeah. literally illegal. They're just out there. They're just like, out hey. there. Hey, I'm a guide. Great. And they'll undercut everybody by a hundred bucks and get a million trips in a, in a year. But you know, is that really the guy you want to go to? Yeah. You know, so there's a few things, but the two things that I would say, again, are, are be realistic about your ability and be realistic about what you think you're going to catch. Yeah. You know, um, I was funny. I was, I was talking to somebody about a, a guy that used to work in this area called Kelly Watson, and he was a nice guy, but I, I sat through one of his presentations one time. It was about 45 minutes long, and he said the word trophy bass at least 
20 times. <laughs> and I'm thinking, way to set the expectation, you right. know. I mean, I love it when my customers will catch a huge fish, but that's not every day. Right. And, you know, I'm honest about that, you know. And I tell people right up front, I don't sell fish. H-E-B sells fish. Right. I sell an experience. Right. And hopefully that experience is good. I have a 80, last time I checked, it was about 82% return rate. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's really so, good. That's, that's super high. Yeah. And, and I'm proud that's, of that. Yeah. I have a guy actually from San Antonio that fishes with me every month and has, ready for this, for 26 years. Wow, yeah. I remember when his son was born, <laughs> and his son just had a son. Oh, man. And oh, he wow. has fished with me every month That's for 26 awesome. years. We sat down one time and drank a bunch of scotch and figured out how much money he'd spent with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good thing he was a cardiologist because I think he had some kind of infarction right after he figured it out. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, I, and I will, uh, add on, I've done a, a trip with Kevin and, uh, definitely makes the experience worthwhile and by far the best lunches <laughs> on a guided trip. Uh, I had a lady call me the other day to buy a gift certificate for Christmas. And she said, I went on the Orvis site and read your reviews. I'm really intrigued about the food. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, it sounds so good, <laughs> but yeah, I, and I'll, and I'll tell you a little bit about the food, and, and, and this is no joke. There's only a few things in a guide's life that you can control. You can't control the weather. You can't control the fish. You can't control any of that stuff. The things you can control are the food, the attitude that you come to the table with, and the gear. Yeah. yeah. And I always try to have the best gear, the cleanest boat. I always try to have a great attitude. And I always try to have a really good food because, believe me, that has saved me on a few days when the fishing's been horrible. And then you bust out the Waldorf salad with shrimp on top. Baby, it's all oh, forgotten. Man. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It's all forgotten. So, you know, it, it's just part of the experience. I want people to enjoy it and to, you know, have that good memory. Where the fish and, and you read some of my reviews and they'll say straight up, man, it was a hard day of fishing. We only caught a few fish, but dot dot dot. And then they go on to say about all the other experiences that they had mm -hmm. on the trip. So, you know, I try to make it fun. I try to make it try to make it an experience rather than just all about fish. Yeah. yeah. What are your uh, last question? Because um, yeah. we're we're running out of time. Oh, sorry. No, no, no you're, you're good. good. You're good because I could talk to you for another yes. hour. <laughs> but. Um, uh, what are your what are your best rivers? What would you consider? I would say for consistently big fish, probably the Colorado when it's flowing yeah. well. The Colorado's tough to beat. You can have some just blazing days out there. As far as just sheer numbers, uh, um, either the San Marcos or the South Llano. I've had 100 fish days on both. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So... But uh, if I had to, if somebody held a gun to my head and said, you got to go out and catch some big fish today, it would probably be the Colorado below Austin. Mm -hmm. But that's where you need a, you definitely need a raft for there. Oh, or yeah. a boat, right? Yeah. Sometimes even like a motor for there. Even the San Marcos is hard to wade. Really? San Marcos yeah. is tough to wade because it's deep and fast. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can, you, it, it helps to have a motor on the Colorado, but it's not mandatory. Gotcha. You know. So, but yeah, those are, so, those are the rivers I dig. Yeah, sorry. 
I was going to say, Kevin, how can people um, book with you as well? Like we want to, you know, we want our listeners to know about your, your guiding service and experience. Yeah. So what, what's the best way for them to reach you to book a trip? They can go on my website, which is www.hillcountryflyfishers.com. And make sure it's flyfishers.com because there's a million guys that are like hillcountryflyfishing.com or <laughs> hillcountryff.com. And, you know, they've tried to rip <laughs> off my name every humanly possible way. <laughs> um, or they could just call me. I mean, I, I'll give out my number because, I mean, my number's all over the place. What's your number? It's a 589-3474. And if you ever wondered why a bunch of fishing guides have 3474 as the last four digits, it spells fish. So, <laughs> um, and I think, I, I actually, I, I may be wrong, but I think the first three numbers spell big, but I'm not sure. But anyway, it's 589-3474. And if you want to get a copy of the book, I still have those available. And um, We have them on our website, too. Yeah, and I've got fly tying kits, and yeah. I do trips. I do half days and full days, and I do big trips. Oh. I do corporate training events. Um, I've done a bunch of stuff uh, for corporate stuff. I've done a bunch of, uh, you know, big trips. I think the biggest trip we've done is up to now has been 22 people. Oh, wow. And, and Man, I wish my company would do that. I'll have to pitch that. <laughs> yeah. No, like, y'all, I'll have to ask them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One question I forgot to ask you, but we'll leave it as a teaser for the next time you come oh, on. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, the Lano Bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, asking about how the Lano bug came to be, and it's a pretty popular yeah, it's a fly popular one now. for sure. It's a badass fly. It, it, it oh, is yeah. a I great gotta, fly. I gotta say that I'm I'm more proud of that fly than I think any fly I've ever worked yeah. on. Yeah. So we'll leave that as a teaser All for the right. next episode. But uh, you guys book a trip with Kevin. I think uh, yes. me and me we were talking about getting us out there and shooting yeah. a YouTube video. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, we we'll still for need, sure we shoot need, yeah, We need to do that for sure. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Although um, I'm much better on the radio. When you see me, I'm just an old, fat, white guy. But thanks for listening, guys. Uh, if you guys need any last-minute Christmas gifts, we have our website. You guys can check out our hats, which actually uh, also uh, Kevin – uh, prints all of our stickers. He does, yeah. Um, Kevin's wife prints all of our stickers and our some of our hats that we carry. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, if you guys support us, you're also supporting him. So, but sure. we'll uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode. That's right. Oh, there probably won't be an episode next week. Oh yeah, Christmas between is Christmas up. and New Year's, we're taking a break. But then first of the year, we'll be right back at you. Yeah. Honey, honey, hang out. So we'll see you guys then. <laughs> We're taking a month off. <laughs> <laughs> We're not taking a month off. Just one week. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. See you in two weeks. Sorry I missed you guys tonight, but I am here now. Have a good evening.